Intentional walk for Schwarber. They get to Davis. And with a pitcher spot now on deck, Alan Webster is up in the bullpen. Remember, the bullpen wasn't used on Friday, and Cubs were off on Thursday. Davis in the air, deep left. It is gone. That's a grand slam. The time. Hello, and welcome back to the Framing the Conversation podcast. This is episode nine. I'm Devin Fink, joined today by Jeremy Frank. Um, and we have a special guest today, as we sometimes do. Joining us today on the pod is all the way from Busan, South Korea, is Josh Herzenberg, who is the quality control coach and minor league pitching coordinator for the Lotte Giants of the Korean Baseball Organization. Josh is a really good friend of mine. I uh, used to write at Fangraphs uh, before getting this really, really cool job um, halfway around the world. And all before that, he was a scout for the Dodgers, um, signed Dustin May. So he has quite a resume in baseball. And especially given the current circumstances, is a really interesting person to talk to, um, considering he's seeing live baseball being played every day. So, Josh, how nice is it to be seeing live baseball just being played during these times <laughs> uh thanks for having me on it's definitely a, a perk that i think maybe we're taking a little bit for granted here just given the situation around the world but uh it's definitely nice to kind of be in a routine and see the guys compete every day uh you know even though it's just scrimmages to be able to see them on the field is definitely a nice uh, a nice perk and so you're the the, the quality control coach um and, and as well as the pitching coordinator so as you said before we came on that just means you're busy Basically, your, your job title. I, I loved how you put that. Um, so, starting with that first role, what does the what does it mean to be a quality control coach? I know that's something that a lot of major league teams are starting to institute, but like you know, what what does that really mean for those who might be unfamiliar? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, obviously we have a, a lot of different departments that are working really hard, um, you know, research and development, our major league coaching staff, our baseball operations department. Uh, and, and I'm sort of the, you know, uh, one of the liaisons between sort of all, all the departments to try to sort of take all the information, aggregate it, make it make sense and hopefully provide um, a, a manner for our coaches uh, at the major league level to disseminate the information in a very digestible way for our players. Um, so I spend a lot of time communicating with research and development, uh, you know, getting information from them, uh, understanding exactly what they're putting into the information, understanding exactly what the intentions and the goals are of the information they're providing. And then going back to the coaches and the players uh, on the major league end and really, you know, trying to implement uh, everything that we're working on uh, cohesively, you know, so we're really trying to uh, not necessarily have uh, distinctly separate departments in terms of our communication, we're really trying to blend everything together. And I serve as one of the liaisons that kind of uh, allows that to happen uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and so like, how granular is that sort of, um, I mean, I assume you're not sitting in there coding, uh, but at the same time, it's like, you have to have this relationship with those in research and development to be able to get that information. Um, so how closely are you working with those sort of guys to be able to make it, you know, translatable to the guys on the field? Yeah, good question. I, I mean, I, I can't code. I wish I could. I, I've been telling myself for years that I, I should learn at least basic code. But unfortunately, I have not taken that project on. Um, I think it's just a matter of, like you said, communication and relationship building. I think, um, you know, on every end of the spectrum is is crucial. You know, everybody has a lot of information. Everybody's really intelligent and and has similar capacities and similar abilities. And, and it's just a matter of how we are able to commun communicate that information um, through different ends of the cycle. So. For me, um, I try to get as granular as possible in understanding what the players need, in understanding what R&D needs, and understanding what our analysts and baseball operations need in order to execute all of their jobs um, so that I can make it as easy as possible to kind of take the information from a big picture. So, for example, if a player, uh, if I have a pitcher that uh, I find out wants a certain, uh, you know, color on their heat maps, or if I want to, you know, if we find out that a hitter uh, has a certain 
pitch type that he is looking for in terms of, uh, you know, evaluating a, a, an opposing pitcher's tendencies, I can then take that and go back to R&D and explain to them exactly what the purpose is, exactly why the hitter is looking for this or the pitcher is looking for this, and then help the R&D team, uh, you know, to sort of procure the information that's needed in an understandable way. Uh, obviously, let them work their magic and, and, and code things out and create the, uh, the right. processes. And then once they create what they need, we can put it all together together in this communication channel and bring it back to the player. That's an example of maybe something that might happen. Josh, it's, it's really interesting you mentioned that because I was talking to uh, Eno uh, Saris the other day and we were kind of talking about that exact role, the the communication role more so where you're not really doing the hands-on like mathematical or like hard computer science work, but you know what those people are doing and you can kind of translate what, they, what they're doing and, and explain that to the players because if the players don't understand what's going on, they're not going to take it seriously or they're not going to uh, – like a lot of people don't take numbers seriously unless they understand um, what's going on and why that's happening. So I think that's kind of pretty much the exact role you have if I understand correctly. Yeah, I mean ideally, you know, definitely <laughs> that that's the goal. Um, I think, you know, I, I'm of the opinion that players always want to learn and they always want to strive to get better. And the source of information is definitely less important than the actual information that, uh, itself. Um, if a player can learn to trust you and you're, uh, you being the source of that information, then I don't think it's really relevant um, how else that information comes to you as long as you earn that trust from the player. And obviously, earning trust happens in a different way from person to person. Um, so yeah, I definitely think that that communication, that sort of liaison role um, is absolutely crucial. Um, I can't throw 95 miles per hour. I never could. I can't code. I never could. And so I'm sort of in this middle ground where I have some knowledge and some understanding of everything, but I'm not an expert in anything. And so I feel like I have to work that much harder to try to bridge the gap and to try to um, communicate accordingly. And fortunately, in my background, as, as Devin sort of highlighted briefly, I, you know, I have been surrounded by a lot of really good people uh, in my career that I've learned from and kind of have an understanding, at least I hope, um, of how those processes look in a successful way. And I've just tried to, you know, do my best to implement that according to what I've learned. Yeah, so, that makes total sense. So, so two questions on that. So like first, if you have a player who might not buy into the data, you know, what's been your approach there? And then secondly, do you find it harder with the language gap also? You know, do you think players are have, have found it to be tougher to, as you said, gain that sort of trust because, sure. hey, this guy is, American, not saying that that's necessarily inherently a bad thing, but I'm sure that that could cause a rift here or there. Yeah. So to touch on your first question, um, I actually don't believe that there's any player that's going to be completely resistant to any sort of data or information. Um, I think it's a, the, you know, the requirement and the responsibility of the coaches to figure out a way to communicate all the information in a, in a really easy to understand way uh, for each player, you know, and we have certain players that, that, understand information in a lot of different ways. And so it's a challenge, obviously, communicating in those ways. Um, but I actually really don't think that any player is going to be totally resistant to information. Um, I think if, if it comes to them in an overwhelming manner, which obviously data, you know, especially very specific uh, granular data sets could have a tendency to do, um, I think it's our responsibility to really take a step back, work together as a coaching staff and figure out a way to really help the player understand the information. Because like I said, I do strongly believe that all players do want to learn. It's just a matter of not intimidating them and figuring out the best way to uh, communicate that information to each player. Um, to hit on your second note, I guess it kind of tied in. I actually find the language gap to be sort of a blessing in disguise for me because uh, it really requires me to be really concise with my communication. Uh, the team has provided me with an interpreter um, that I'm really fortunate to have on like an every minute of everyday basis at work. So there's no concern in terms of trying to seek out like a like a like a like a translator app or anything like that on the spot. Um, but with that being said, obviously, um, being concise and really hitting the the emphasis on what I need to to put put across uh, is crucial in communication. So whether that's communicating with anybody in the front office or on the coaching staff or or players or anything. Uh, it really, it, it's a challenge to be concise. And I think it's allowed me to um, work through things and help, you know, figure out exactly how to think about exactly what words are really, really important to say before saying them. And so for me personally, as someone that, uh, you know, does have a tendency to kind of speak a lot, I suppose, um, that's actually been a, a blessing, like I said, because it's enabled me to really take a step back and, and understand and really be specific and concise with my words. 
Yeah. So, um, so Josh, so um, I haven't watched much uh, KBO baseball in my life, admittedly. So for people who are similar to me listening to this podcast, what would you say some some main differences are between um, Major League Baseball and the KBO? I know, obviously, they're the same sport with the same rules, mostly, I'm sure. But I'm sure there are some key cultural differences between the two sports and maybe some rule differences. Sure. So in terms of rules, there really aren't any huge differences. It's pretty much the same sport, um, you know, or, or straightforward. Um, I would say in terms of the manner of play, uh, watching a KBO game in comparison to an MLB game, you're going to see probably more sinkers, splitters, sliders. Um, when in the States, you're probably going to see a little bit more of a north-south profile from the pitchers. Um, and as a result, you're going to see some swing planes that are a little bit of an alteration from the norm from MLB. Um, I've noticed such in working out some of our uh, spray charts for our hitters and for, for heat maps for opposing pitchers. It's just sort of a, a stark difference between the two leagues. Uh, as a result, you're also going to maybe see like more side armors out of a bullpen because that tendency is sort of there to lean on that skill set. So I would say that's probably the most screamingly obvious um, thing in terms of what's going on on the field and in terms of just culturally um, what's obviously been talked about the most publicly is like there's a lot of bat flips. Um, the fans are very vocal. They're very passionate about the game. They sing throughout the entire game. They have their own cheer songs. Each player has their own cheer songs with their cheerleading squad um, at every game. So the fans are very invested in the game from first pitch to last pitch in terms of the noise that they're making, the volume that they're they're putting out, and 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 really the uh, the the different style of cheering that's provided. So um, from a from a fan perspective, I think those are the two stark differences that you'll see. And then from like a more specific on-field perspective, like I said, the uh, the, the different style and hitting and, and pitching just in terms of approaches, I think is pretty obvious. That's interesting. I, it is funny you mentioned that because I think if you had to have someone who's never watched a game in the KBO guess the differences in the actual in the actual game, like you said, I think their stereotype of, of like a Korean baseball player are those the side armor like relief pitchers with like a nasty arsenal or even a starting pitcher like that. <laughs> and then I feel like they they think that um a lot. I think a lot of people think that hitters that come over from Korea or even like Japan, they don't they struggle more at the plate. Um, than they well than they did than they did in Korea, so I think it's interesting that you mentioned that because I think that kind of well not really as much with the hitters but with the pitchers I think that we do see that kind of style of play come over when we have players from from Asia come into the United States. Yeah, and, and my assumption again I don't have any direct uh, you know experience with a player coming from Korea that I coached into the states. I just took this job obviously, but. Um, my expectation should a player come over from Korea and, and struggle at least in the beginning of their career in the States is, is probably most likely just because of the, the difference in tendencies more than anything else. I don't think players are less capable. I just think they're adjusting to something that's a little bit more new to them than, yeah, than otherwise. Exactly. Yeah. And then also, obviously there's a stark cultural difference between living in South Korea and living in the States. So I think there's an off the field aspect to that also. Yeah. I could not imagine making that kind of switch and then having to play baseball like the next year just in a different with a bunch of guys you don't know in a language that you can't speak just going from one culture to another that's crazy definitely definitely and what about moving from the u.s to korea jeremy one interesting guy that that uh, lote added this year was dan straley Mm -hmm. who i know josh has enjoyed working with um (laughs) and i guess like what's the expectation as far as you said the swing planes are a a little bit different you know, how, how do you expect his stuff to sort of translate as more of a uh, he's coming from an American Major League Baseball background, um, not necessarily a splitter guy, per se. Um, you know, how do you expect that sort of how do you expect that to mesh as far as him moving over and, and you tweaking some things here and there um, to potentially, you know, up his performance at this stage in his career? Sure. I think, you know, we have three uh, foreign players with us this year. We have Dan, obviously, as I mentioned. We have Adrian Sampson, who's also a right-handed pitcher. And then we have Dixon Machado, um, who's a shortstop. And I think we're fortunate to have all three of them just, uh, you know, from from my experiences with them so far, uh, they're they're all intelligent people that have, like, a pretty good understanding of their skill set. And so as a result, I think they've approached it more as, you know, uh, things change from game to game. You know, obviously, just taking Dan as an example, because you mentioned him. I mean, he played in the NL East. Uh, for the last few years for the Marlins and, you know, having him on the roster, he has an understanding of what it was like facing the Braves and the Nationals and the Mets and, 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 and going through these lineups with other teams. And so he has an understanding of 
different player tendencies from at bat to at bat. You know, all of our all of our foreign players have experience in the major leagues um, in that regard, whether as a pitcher or as a hitter. So they're viewing it more from a from an at bat to at bat, from a pitch by pitch standpoint, just in terms of making adjustments according to what they're gonna, uh, you know, what's going to be most successful for them. Um, with all that being said, at the end of the day, you know, pitching with conviction and hitting with aggression is, is always paramount, is always most important. So for a guy like Dan or for a guy like Adrian on the mound or for a guy like Dixon at the plate, you know, being confident in your own abilities and executing according to your own game plan is, is almost always going to be, um, you know, more successful or, or, or something that we're going to emphasize more uh, on a pitch to pitch basis than anything else. So the adjustment kind of is what it is. I think they take it on a game to game, game to game basis, but you know, so far, obviously we haven't played real games, but so far I really haven't seen any issues for those guys moving over here. They've all done a really good job. And I think that says a lot about the players that, that do go over um, overseas to play because a lot of people, a lot of players could just give up if their major league baseball ser- career isn't su- successful, especially a guy like Straley, who's um, like 31. Now, I don't know how the other two guys are, but those are guys that want to get better. They want to play baseball, and they do. They'll do anything that they can to do that. And going to Korea was obviously what they ended up doing. And some people think it's like going to Japan or whatever. But in the end, they just want to play baseball. They want to get better. They want to hopefully further their their major league baseball career potentially. And if not, just just play baseball. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think their competitive juices are flowing regardless of where they are. Um, I think obviously understanding that you know. The KBO is a professional baseball league. It's not a walk in the park. You know, it's 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 different from MLB, but it's not worse than MLB in a lot of ways. Right. So, you know, coming over here and understanding that, you know, hey, this isn't just the last stop in your career to make a few extra bucks is definitely important for us to bring foreign players over. Um, and our guys have definitely embraced everything culturally and about the, com- the competitive nature on the field. I know speaking specifically for Dan and Adrian on the mound. Um, you know, they've, they've been working and tinkering on their pitches. They've, they've been, you know, messing around with new grips and new pitch mixes and, and just really working hard on trying to refine their craft and trying to be the best they can be. And that would be no different whether, you know, Adrian was still pitching in in Arlington, Texas, or if Dan was still pitching in Baltimore, like he did last year, or if they're pitching here in Busan, I think it's the same, uh, no matter where you are, you know, your competitive juices are flowing and you want to be the best you can be. Yeah. Yeah. And you do ever like. I don't know, as motivation for that. I mean, I think, especially for guys who, who are younger, um, do you ever point to, like, hey, you know, we, we understand that you were playing the major leagues. You might want to go back there. You know, look at Miles Michaelis, right? Like, he went to Korea for a, a bunch of years, really improved his skill set, and came back to the major leagues and put up a four-war four season with the Cardinals and then sure. a three-war season the next year. Like, that's I'm not saying you're trying to motivate them with, you know, obviously you want to win there, but I'm sure that's kind of in the back of their mind. Like, hey, you know, maybe I can improve. Maybe I can sort of change things up a little bit. And then, you know, I'm already kind of on the major league radar, having been in the league, in the show before. Maybe that's something I could look forward to in the future as well. Everyone's got to have a short term and a long term goal, I guess is my point. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I, we, we call it, you know, what's your why we're identifying the, the purpose for, for somebody and why they want to compete and why they want to be successful. Um, if that's somebody's why, if that's somebody's reason for wanting to, you know, perform and be successful here in the KBO, then by all means, we're going to embrace it as a coaching staff. And, you know, obviously they know Josh Lindblom's story who just signed in the States. And they know Eric Boilermaker. here. There you go. <laughs> they, uh, they know Eric Thames story. Who's a Pepperdine wave. Sorry. Um, you know, who came over and played for the NC Dinos and, and ended up signing a big contract with Milwaukee. They understand, you know, they have they're, they're either friends with these guys or they, they have mutual friends with these guys in, in the game. So they understand those those, uh, you know, those stories. And, and if that's a goal of theirs to, to make their way back to the States, to make their way back home to their families and, and, and to continue playing in the States, then by all means, we're going to embrace that. If that's something that they haven't identified as their why, if you will, and there's other reasons why they want to compete, then we're going to embrace that also. Anything that we can do as a coaching staff to try to, you know, encourage them to be competitive and encourage them to be as comfortable as they can on a day-to-day basis is something we're definitely going to embrace. And so it's definitely important to identify that for us so that we have a better understanding of the people we're working with. Um, and if that is a goal of theirs, we're definitely not going to uh, shy away from it. We're going to embrace so you can continue working hard for that goal. I think you put that pretty pretty well. Um, I think that's a little different than obviously like a major league baseball coaching staff because really everyone who's in the major league baseball is really just there for one purpose. It's to win major league baseball games. There's no like further like there's no there's no other level that they're trying to reach. But I think 
it's almost similar to, to college baseball coaches. Obviously, it's a much higher level, but everyone playing in college definitely has a different reason for why they're there, whether it just be they want to play baseball competitively. It's a very high level of talent in the NCAA. Some players think they can make it to the majors. Some players are trying to get into the minors or trying to get into foreign leagues. So I think that's kind of very similar to how college coaches do their thing because they have so many um, play, like players coming from so many different places and they have to obviously win games and also make it work so that all of the players are happy and doing and trying to accomplish their individual goals as well as team goals. And Jerry, you make an interesting point too, um, as far as college, um, because Josh, I'm not sure if you saw, this might be putting you on the spot a little bit, but uh, the MLB draft this season is only going to be, I mean, the baseball has the discretion to make it as long or as short as they want, but I, they can make it as few as five rounds. So do you anticipate and this might be like too speculative, but do you anticipate any maybe college seniors who thought they could get drafted potentially coming over playing in foreign leagues? Like, like we see NBA style where guys go play in Australia for a year or whatever to, in order to get drafted. Obviously, if those guys signed, they wouldn't really be eligible for the draft the next year anyway. Um, but do you think there could be an influx of, of fresh out of college sort of guys who want to play professionally, but we're kind of, you know, their dream was kind of halted by a much shorter draft. So my assumption, should the the draft rules that you indicated, you know, uh, you know, come out that it's shorter. My assumption is that that is definitely something that college players, college seniors, especially uh, would likely explore. Um, I personally can only speak for Korea because that's my only experience overseas. Um, we have a rule where we are only allowed to have three foreign players on the roster throughout the entire organization at one time. And so that's going to kind of limit the ability for, uh, you know, fresh out of college players to come over here specifically to Korea. Um, you know, as for other places around the world, I really don't know each league's rules to really, you know, speak to it. Um, but definitely would imagine that that's something, uh, you know, college graduating college kids would look to do. Um, I know we spent a few weeks uh, in Australia for spring training this year. And I would imagine, you know, we, we were in Adelaide, we were using the, the facility that the Adelaide Giants using the Australian Baseball League. And I would imagine that, you know, a league like that, again, I don't know their rules, but a league like that might be a, a situation where they could look to expand and explore given their partnership with MLB, um, you know, and, and, and expand their rosters to allow that to happen. But again, that is strictly speculative. I don't really know the rules for any other, for any other leagues. Devin, you make, you make a great point because I, I, didn't, I never really thought about it that way. But if you're a guy who's like a 15th round talent, obviously those guys definitely have the potential to make the major leagues. It happens quite a good amount. But at the same time, you just missed all, pretty much all of your senior year of college baseball season. Assuming you're a senior, you're, you're coming out of, you just graduated college. So you really didn't get to show much to MLB scouts if, if they had you on your radar. And at the same time, you're not going to get drafted. So there aren't too many, like I think, they're going to be able to sign with major league teams, but it's a lot different than if you get drafted into an organization and you're guaranteed that spot. It's more of, it's not, I guess, I don't really know how it's going to be like, if it's going to be more on the player to seek out opportunities with major league teams, or if the major uh, league players are still going to be like doing their, their due diligence and trying to find yeah. the next 35 guys they would have drafted anyways and trying to sign them. Yeah. What I read though, is that they're going to be capped in their bonus pool money for his, um, signing undrafted free agents. Gotcha. So I like they're, that. they're, um, I guess that's what I because even today um, in the forty round draft, there's a cap on how much they can actually spend on guys that aren't um, drafted. I think you can only go X number of money over your bonus pool before you can't before you start losing picks in the in the next year's draft. Um, and um, yeah, I think that's still going to be implemented. And college seniors generally don't sign for that much money anyway because they have no leverage which is definitely um something that maybe they can explore changing in the future um but uh i mean the bonuses for college seniors are, are generally yeah and very, very this is low. more this is more unrelated to the kbo which we were previously talking about but i think a lot of people are scared that this is a precursor to uh gutting minor league teams because and they they think that this was always going to happen anyways and, and manfred is using um, the recent outbreak as more of an excuse. I haven't really made up my mind on that yet, but I can see where they're coming from because if you decrease this draft from 40 rounds, even just to 20 rounds permanently, you're, I mean, where's all the talent going to come from? They don't have enough players to make all these minor league teams work out. 
And I right, think that exactly. we've, we've heard a lot of talk about Manfred already getting rid of minor league teams or he's planning on doing that. And I think that's really a precursor. That could be a precursor in, in doing that. So I can only, I'm, I'm, this is obviously speculation for me. Um, I, you know, definitely don't want to say, you know, what MLB might be intending. Um, I did spend several years as a scout with the Dodgers. Um, I did have several situations where I scouted uh, players that ended up getting drafted on day three, which is after the 10th round that uh, have had success in their careers or made it to the major leagues and had, you know, various levels of success there. Uh, Definitely feel for the players, um, you know, in college and high school that are looking for an opportunity at the next level. Um, In terms of curiosity for the future, I would say the biggest impact that I'm going to see that I'm more curious about than anything is, is arbitration moving forward, depending on how long this year takes. Um, you know, and how that's going to play out for, for people that are arbitration eligible uh, in their in their MLB careers. And then also like injury rates for pitchers, you know, with with the varying levels of innings pitch that are going to be happening in 2020. Um, obviously, in the short term, that's obviously a good thing to save arm health. Uh, but long term, we don't know what it's going to be like in terms of, you know, players building back up their arm strength for 2021. I know, you know, if a guy's going to throw 40 innings in 2020, throwing 200 innings in 2021 probably is not the best idea. So I'm just curious that there's obviously no precedent for something like this. So those are two things that came to mind, but more importantly, like you guys are saying, I definitely feel for the players um, that are hoping to get an opportunity that have been working hard and are talented enough. Um, I can tell you from experience as a scout um, and friends, obviously that are still scouting in the game, um, you know, get your name out there. Obviously there are a lot of really good resources online tweet at pitching ninja and flat ground apps and all the things that he's doing that are great for baseball. Uh, you know, and, and obviously feel free to reach out to various scouts in your area that you might know to try to, you know, get yourself in front of them and try to have a conversation. Uh, and if I can help any players that happen to be listening, feel free to DM me on Twitter at Josh Herzenberg and, and, you know, I'll try to do whatever I can. If, if the opportunity arises, I definitely feel for the players that are in that kind of tough situation where they're, you know, their short-term careers as an amateur were cut short and they're looking for that opportunity. Yeah. And this is kind of all tangentially related to the, the COVID-19 outbreak. And as I kind of alluded to earlier, Josh, you're seeing live baseball being played. Um, you, you guys are having scrimmages. Um, has the KBO announced an opening day yet or no? No, not yet. So the latest announcement, and I should say it is currently uh, March 29th when we're recording this, almost midnight my time. So this literally could change in the next hour. Um, but it's just as of right now, what we are hearing is that we are going to be allowed to uh, scrimmage other KBO teams uh, starting on April 7th. Uh, right now we're just doing intra-squad scrimmages. Uh, both in the minor leagues and in the major leagues. And then the season is not going to start before April 20th. Um, but I think the hope is to start it at some point in late April. Um, I don't know about, you know, fan attendance requirements of games. I don't know about anything related to any public health beyond what we've heard. Um, but I do know that uh, definitely April 7th is the plan for uh, scrimmages against other teams, at least at this point. And then the league guaranteed us a two week notice um, from that date on. So the earliest we're going to play is two weeks from there. And, you know, obviously the sooner the better in our minds, but public health is obviously a priority before that. So from what you were saying with um, the environment in the KBI, I've heard that from a, a lot of people with all of like the, the cheering and how loud the stadium gets. Obviously getting baseball back is the number one priority, but having no fans is going to be definitely a little weird. Obviously it's way better than having no baseball being played at all. But I'm sure it's totally. going to be a huge difference for a lot of these guys who are used to a crazy um, environment in the fan in the, in the in the in the crowd, especially having to play the beginning of their season, if if that is the case, with yeah. like in front of no fans. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think you know that's definitely something that's going to factor in. And the only thing we can do as a coaching staff is is continue to remind them, you know, hey, we're competing out here not not because the fans are making noise, but because we're 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 wanting to compete. You know, you spent your entire life as a kid playing in front of very very few fans, and then suddenly. You know, you come into the situation with tens of thousands of fans in the stadium and theoretically the game hasn't changed at all. You know, and so I think we're going to try our best to encourage them to remember that and continue to compete pitch to pitch. Um, Admittedly, it is very weird. We had a scrimmage just the other day in our major league stadium and, you know, having tens of thousands of empty seats and hearing the echo of the bat and the echo of the the ball hitting the glove and all the chatter in the infield and the outfield was definitely a little bit weird, um, you know, compared to what it would generally be if it were packed. Um, but yeah, it's something that, we're going to have to adjust to. That sounds a lot like um, college basketball. I'm a big 
<clears throat> I'm a big college basketball fan. And I think the environment in college basketball is, is actually like much more like intense and much more like the student sections are crazier than anything you'll get in like the NBA. Have you ever been to a Dartmouth basketball game? That is fair. I have not been. But I do remember once this the coronavirus outbreak started, they tried to play college basketball a co- for a couple days with no fans. And before they realized that it was a lot worse than it was then that they couldn't even play. But it was really weird for those two days watching like in the conference tournaments, they'd be playing with no fans. And even the players seem to be weirded out by that because they're used to playing the entire season either at home games where they have their entire fans and home court advantage makes a huge difference in college basketball or on the road where they'd have to really work against the crowd noise. And obviously on neutral courts, it's really a varying mix of who's there rooting for you and who's not. But I think it's kind of similar between uh, the KBO and I guess college basketball. Yeah, I think that's a really good comparison. I mean, there's no doubt it's weird, right? There's no doubt it's going to be different. Um, it's going to be awkward. And and I think maybe even more important than the silence in the crowd is just going to be the fact that the reason for the silence in the crowd is always on everybody's mind, you know, even if yeah. it's in the back of people's mind. There's a, there's a pandemic going on worldwide, and there's obviously a public health concern, and that's the reason why this difference is happening, and that's not a good thing. You know, I, I can compare it probably to – uh, the Orioles playing in an empty crowd a few years ago at Camden Yards when there was political unrest in Baltimore. And, and uh, you know, the public safety was the paramount of, of people concerned. So I think, um, like you said, it's definitely going to be different. It's definitely going to be weird should it happen. Um, we are going to try our best as a coaching staff and as a, as a team to just work through it. You know, obviously, should it happen? This is technically speculation. Um, but should it happen, we're going we're gonna to work through it as best as we can and continue to compete uh, while understanding and recognizing, you know, hey, this is unique, this is weird, and it's something that uh, hopefully it does not become the norm. And, and kind of getting back to the, the opening day question, when was the original starting day for opening day? So the original like start was a few days ago, yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, March 24th, yeah, so that was going to be the start date. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we're just kind of in a holding pattern. Now, we knew that was going to be pushed back pretty early. We, we were aware of that. And, and I'm, I'm sorry if I'm unfamiliar, but how many games are normally played in the KBO season? Yeah, uh, we play 144 is the, is the major league schedule. The, the first. And so are play. they still planning on playing the entire year? So ideally, yes. Um, the KBO schedule works out so that technically or normally um, every Monday is an off day on the schedule. And then this year – uh, being formerly a an, an Olympic year, um, we were actually going to be taking a break during the Olympics because the Korean national oh. team is is something that uh, it, you know a lot of people take pride in here. Um, so now with the Olympics being pushed back to next year, um, the hope I believe is that we can figure out a way to still have all those 144 games where maybe we're going to have to play on some Mondays, maybe we're going to have to play a doubleheader here and there. You know, we'll obviously eliminate that Olympic break and hopefully make it work where we can still play a full schedule within the the, the shorter time frame. And, and so, what sort of like I don't know if you could say lessons um, because obviously two different situations based on how it's being handled beyond baseball. Uh, but what do you think sort of the process and getting back to baseball, uh, what sort do you think Major League Baseball could take from uh, that? Because they're kind of scrambling right now. I mean, they, they reached an agreement um, late last week with the players on, like, what to do if the season is canceled, what's going to happen because this, assuming the season isn't, there's this transaction, there's this transaction freeze, there's this $170 million payment that's going to be distributed based on players experience levels like it seems like an absolute mess that they're trying to work through um how do you think things are going to be handled from here using your experience it's almost as if you're a few months into the future for us because there is going to be a a training period a, a, a similar style spring training thing that will inevitably happen. They can't just say, okay, we're playing regular season games right now. The players would have a fit. So what do you think the process is going to look like stateside if you were to try and mirror the Korean process? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing here is that the league has done, from my perspective, a really good job of, you know, listening to public health officials and understanding what's going on publicly. Um, You know, from again, from my perspective, I think the Korean government has done a pretty good job being proactive, um, you know, with testing centers, with, um, you know, identifying uh, confirmed cases and identifying where those confirmed cases might have been over their past two weeks um, and really kind of, you know, not necessarily quarantining 
people in that area, but definitely making people in that area aware of the precautions they need to take. Um, and, you know, that then comes with uh, transparency and empathy, right? I think uh, in understanding that uh, people are nervous, people are concerned. This is something that nobody's ever had to deal with in their lifetime. We don't know what's happening. We don't know what's going on. We don't know when it's going to end. And that's a very scary thing when something entirely out of your control is going on. So I think, you know, having empathy and understanding and patience with other people, I think is going to be really paramount. And then the transparency with the players that are being impacted, not just the players on the field, but people that are being impacted by this from like an economic standpoint, from a, from a personal economic standpoint, people that are working for teams that are relying on income that is uh, related to um, the team. You know, obviously there are, there are players that are being impacted by this that are in the, in the spotlight and, and they deserve the attention that they're getting, but there are a lot of other players in the game and, and people that are impacted by this situation that are maybe not in the spotlight. And so I think it's important for the people that are making decisions uh, who I don't envy because this is almost an impossible decision to make, but I think it's important for them to ha empathize and have an understanding for all the other people involved and try to be as transparent as possible um, with the situation. I, I know I appreciate the KBO, you know, as someone that's living 7,000 miles away from home in a country that speaks a different language, I've been, you know, uh, you know, happy with the KBO's responses and their understanding and their transparency. And it's actually comforted me to hear, you know, a lot of people, a lot of league officials say, hey, we don't know, you know, we don't know what's going to happen, but this is the the best, uh, you know, guess that we have at this point, and we're going to stay proactive and stay vigilant and keep you guys in the loop. Yeah, I think you definitely, you definitely made a great point there. Obviously, it is a, a global pandemic, which is terrible for everyone, but looking baseball specifically, there's no one that benefits from this. Usually, usually a lot of public events that happen that could impact the game it benefits some people and it hurts other people and you're always trying to figure out like how can we balance out between like the people it helps and the people it may hurt but this is one of those situations that happens once in a while where no one no one likes this situation obviously it is killing people it is making people sick but even going past that which is even hard to say because there are so many people suffering from this but even trying to look at it from a baseball like a specific level which we're trying to do here no one is no one is getting the the good end of the stick here. Everyone is having to make sacrifices, having to make tough decisions. Like they're having to make the they're trying to make the best decision out of a lot of tough like decisions that are going to hurt people. A hundred percent. I think you hit the nail on the head. And I mean, we are really fortunate. I'm totally healthy. I have no you know uh, conditions right now that I'm dealing with. So knock on wood, obviously. Um, but I'm totally healthy. All my coworkers and all the players here are totally healthy. So. As you said, there are thousands and thousands of people around the world that aren't as fortunate right now. And that's obviously the most important thing that we can we can have our, our minds on. But I mean, as a decision maker going through this um, this process, I mean, the uncertainty of everything that's going to happen is really, really crucial to, uh, in my opinion, be transparent about, like I said. And I think comforting those that are concerned, that are worried, that are going through these things and being able to provide them with some sort of uh, familiar, uh, comfort. I, I keep trying to find another word, but I keep going back to comfort, uh, I think is really, really important. And so I think you hit the nail on the head. There's obviously far more important issues that are going on than baseball, but at the same time, baseball and other sports and other events do serve as escapes for a lot of different people around the world. And, um, you know, we need to keep in mind that, uh, things are bad and things aren't, ideal and things aren't how we would draw them up but we are still fortunate because we are still healthy and over here we are going to be playing baseball hopefully in the relatively near future and that's going to be a great thing so now we're all going to become lote giants fans now because because <laughs> uh, if, if we're promised baseball by late april at the earliest i will be watching baseball <laughs> i wonder if well, okay. is going to pick it up they've been don't looking for something to they've been looking for something to play <laughs> Don't put Especially, words in my mouth. I didn't promise anything. So I yeah, I know. I know. I said at the earliest. <laughs> at the earliest. Yeah. But, um, so shameless plug, though. YouTube, uh, Giants TV is our YouTube channel. Um, if you want to follow Sung Min Kim on Twitter, he's a coworker of ours that's actively tweeting out the links and the, the times and everything. I saw Jeff Passan, who's a great guy, was kind enough to retweet everything yesterday and kind of put out that information. So the more people that watch our games, the better. We love interacting. We love new fans around the world. And um, you know, you're going to see some, some Korean bat flips. You're going to see some guys wearing masks, which might be unique. Um, you're going to hopefully see some nasty splitters and some high fastballs out of the pitchers that we've been working with, but yeah, uh, it, it should be a good time. So if you want to go on YouTube, giants TV is the channel and we're going to be live streaming every single scrimmage. That, we have. That's awesome. That's awesome. And we're, we're going to see, you know, dance Australia on that, on the mound too, for, 
for those who are, I mean, he's he's a pretty well known name in in base in pretty serious baseball fan circles. So yeah, I mean, I, that's pretty that's pretty cool at least for my. Yeah, he will be. I promise you, he will be the only person on the mound on that channel with a big red beard. So he's pretty pretty easy to identify. <laughs> and, and Josh, I know you're just a, a big baseball guy in general, and there's there's two questions that I have that are completely unrelated. Well, the first one is related. So. Um, how many games do you think baseball has to play, Major League Baseball has to play, for the season to be considered legitimate? <laughs> well, I guess to find, I guess in my, your my opinion, would be, what's your definition of legitimate? To get at least, let's say, a super majority of fans to say that the super World majority. Series, like like sixty percent, the world the World Series was awarded like fairly, and that there shouldn't be any sort of doubt. That the that the process was played out the same the, like the correct yeah. way like like so if, actually, if Major yeah. League Baseball like decided to institute like a, a tournament where every team makes it give the Nationals and Astros buys and then do like a three game series five game series seven game series nine like if they did that like no one would say the World Series was given you know in a fair in in normal way but if they played like 120 games and then had the playoffs as normal like. I think everyone would generally agree. Yeah, okay, they did the best they could. We can accept this. Yeah, I mean, I, I think your assumptions probably aren't wrong. I actually, and this is probably very utopian of me, but my hope is that people um, recognize that once baseball comes back, hopefully things are starting to get back to normal. And I think we just appreciate the ability to watch the sport every day, you know, and whether the game is, or whether the season is 20 games or 200 games, I think just the ability to, watch the game in some sort of normalcy in a, in a, in a process I think is going to be exciting. So, I mean, I don't know the answer. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know what that might look like for fans, whether it's half a season or a full season, or like you said, 120 games or some sort of round robin with buys that are given out. I don't really know what that might look like, but my hope, and like I said, it might be utopian of me. My hope is that fans are identifying these games as something that's really positive and just exciting to watch. And, you know, if their favorite team happens to win or not win based on a shorter season, season that's obviously unfortunate for that fan but at the same time it's better than no season being played at all yeah no for sure i think it'll be interesting to see how because i know mariano rivera said that in a shortened season um he wouldn't gauge the champion as legitimate it'll be interesting to see how public perception um because we do have it's funny because recently there 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 was a world series that a lot of fans are are deeming uh, illegitimate Ill- illegitimate in the last few years so it'll be interesting to see if this is another one of those years obviously not by by cheating but by just a shortened schedule maybe making a team get in the playoffs that shouldn't have or making a good team miss just based on the just the the variability of a, a shortened season but it will be interesting sure. to see how fans take this because obviously fans want baseball even if fans only were guaranteed a 20 game season with playoffs they'd rather have that than nothing I'm i'm pretty sure that's how most fans feel the question is, how would they feel about crowning the champion? I think a lot of I've seen a few people say that they should just combine this year and next year, which would be interesting because then you just have an even bigger season for the the 2021 season, and then you still get baseball in 2020. I'm not sure how I feel about that. I think I'd rather just have it be like split, like just a, a split from 2020 to 2021, where there are two different seasons. I, it'll be interesting to see how fans perceive this. Yeah, and I think, I mean, in a way, like, just the fact that we're having this conversation about so many different possibilities, I think, is unique. And I think, hopefully, the league, uh, you know, reads the fan response and and understands how to do things moving forward in maybe a way that's more exciting for the fans. So, like, even if this year doesn't work out, I mean, I know this year is not going to work out as, as originally planned. That's already happening. But even if this year works out where fans are relatively unhappy with the processes um you know hopefully long term we as an industry and specifically mlb as a league is going to be able to learn from the process and hopefully identify some things that might make the game even better long term when it's in more of a normal year where there's not a pandemic happening yeah and and i also think you know talking about legitimacy and and things like that i also think it unfortunately depends on who wins right like i think if the dodgers win the world series I think you'd you'd see more people be like, okay, well, the Dodgers are probably going to be in contention. Though Dodgers fans themselves could be kind of upset because, like, hey, like the year that we finally do it, they haven't won since since the late '80s, I think, right? '89, '88. <laughs> I'm sure Dodgers fans would be pretty happy if they won the World Series. No, but I'm sure they'd be happy. But I'm sure there'd be some <laughs> sort of subset saying. of Dodgers fans that are like, of course, the year we win the World Series. 
we do it in a, in a 110 game year and other fans are like, you know, because they're in the World Series or in the League Championship Series, it feels like almost every single year. Or this, and they the, just, this would be the Mike Trout World Series where like he he hits like 400 over the, the this 80 game regular season and then the Angels win the World Series and everyone's just confused if this is going to like, this is confused by the whole thing. Right, everyone's like hasn't won a playoff series, but then they're going to be like won a playoff series in a season that was shortened by the global pandemic, and then you know the uh, Angels. There's made, so many things. The there's, <laughs> there's so many things. Like I'll be telling my kids about the 2020 baseball season. I'm sure whatever happens, eventually. I'm going to be telling my kids a lot about 2020. Let's be real here. <laughs> no, just just the baseball season. Nothing else. <laughs> Uh, but no, I think like if they do somehow get, I think the 81 is the magic number. I think if they can play a half season, I think people would be satisfied. I think anything over a hundred, I think there's even less doubt. And I, and I know it, that's kind of an arbitrary number, but if, if you said that the baseball season was 120 games, I don't really know what extra added value the last 40 games provide to the standings that 120 games can't in the first yeah. place. Um, and, and yes, it just so happens that in a 162 game season, for whatever reason, these things always seem to come down to the last day for many different teams. But it's not like that still wouldn't happen. It might be different teams happening in a 120 than a 162 because teams can fade. But like generally speaking, over 120 games, you'll still see like the run differential luck even out, things like that. I mean, when the Mariners started like 13 and two that one year, I mean, they were basically 500 after 40 games. And, you know, then you have another 80 on top of that. Like it's, it's not going to be anything crazy. I don't think. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, from a fan perspective, you're probably spot on. Um, I really don't know how the players are going to react. I think it's definitely like a different preparation. Um Some, sometimes, you know, some of it being good, some of it being bad in terms of like a shorter burst of energy to get through the amount of games in the season. So it might change the way guys prep, prepare and then perform. So that's an interesting standpoint that I just don't know about, but I would say, yeah, from a fan perspective, uh, you're probably pretty accurate. I think the more games, the better just to, to prove some, I guess, legitimacy from that perspective for sure. And then Josh, you were also a scout for a long time. And as I mentioned, you signed Dustin May and, and he's pretty cool. He's pretty good at baseball. Um, <laughs> who is the best player you've ever seen play at an amateur level at an amateur level um that's a good question i'd be remiss my if any of my scout friends listen to this i'd be remiss to not mention uh kyle tucker um who i saw in 2014 15 as a high school junior senior and i just fell in love with as a prospect um so my scout friends that might listen to this are probably gonna laugh at that reference just because i probably annoyed them a little bit with how much i talked about them um my area when i was scouting with the dodgers uh the best prospect that i had in my area was was andrew benintendi when he was at university of arkansas um you know he's playing center field in, in the sec uh he performed really well there he had like a, a one and a half to one walk to strikeout ratio hit like 20 home runs still like 24 bags or something like that so that was a really impressive player to find um at that level i think uh i'm trying to think that's a good question i would say you know you, you get some high school guys with some big arm strength at some of these uh summer tournaments you go to like area code games uh hunter green was really impressive at area code games jay groom uh, who was a first round pick to the uh, Red Sox was really impressive. I saw him in, in a tournament in uh, outside of Atlanta. Um, there was some, there was some pretty impressive that uh, Mackenzie Gore was really impressive when he was in high school. So there's a handful of guys that, that were really impressive uh, that I saw, you know, during my time as a scout, but I would say, you know, definitely in my area in terms of somebody that had like the most experience with directly was, was Andrew Benintendi. Interesting. Yeah. And, and- when, when projecting these guys, I know this is kind of just going back a little bit for you um, on a different different sort of topic. How, how, like, how well does a guy establish – okay, I guess two, two levels to this question. First, how quickly does a guy make it known that he's going to be playing professional baseball just from his play on the field? How quickly can you tell this guy is going to be playing pro ball? And in terms, and of, like, in follow, terms of like his tools you're saying? Right, like how soon into a if you go for a series or something, like how soon are you able to say, okay, this is why the team sent me to watch this guy? 
And then to follow up on that, how soon can you tell that this guy is going to be a major league baseball player? Because obviously getting into the pros and then getting to the bigs are two different things. And obviously projecting the, the pro parts a lot easier than projecting the major league part. But for a guy like Ben attending, could you say, okay, this guy is going to be a starting outfielder for a major league team one day? So Ben so my specific story for Ben Intendi, the answer is no. I'll address the first uh, part of the question first. So, I mean, ideally, as soon as possible, right? Like you, you walk in the park, you watch batting practice, and you see a guy hit a lot of home runs or something like that, and it's impressive. Um, he, he just stands out amongst his peers. So um, it really depends on the prospect. Like we, we identify tools. So I don't go – when I was scouting, uh, I, don't, I never went into a game – with a preconceived notion that I was going to evaluate the entire prospect all at once. You, you break down tools and you grade them accordingly. And then you kind of aggregate those tools as you see him and kind of put it all together. So I would say, you know, for a legitimate prospect, that's going to play pro ball. It's pretty obvious pretty quickly that he might have a standout tool or two. That's just a cut above. Um, obviously it's more obvious for like a high school player, for example, than it would have been for a player at, uh, like a TCU, which was in my area when I had North Texas and Oklahoma and Arkansas. So like a big, a big school, um, it might be like a little less obvious because the players are generally pretty good around them. But just to identify that raw tool that kind of sets him apart from his peers, that usually happens pretty quickly. And then from there, you kind of break it down and you just kind of have an understanding of um, exactly how that tool plays. And I always phrase it as he has a tool. Can it be a skill? You know, that's kind of how I would phrase it in my head. And and you kind of have an understanding of how that tool is going to translate into a skill, how long it might take to get there, the risk it might take to not get there, and then, uh, you know, aggregate all the tools that you might see into an overall grade. So that was kind of my process um, for identifying them. So I don't know if that answers the question, but ideally, as soon as possible, as soon as you walk in the park, you see, oh, this guy's a big leaguer. Um, obviously, that doesn't happen all the time. It didn't happen for me with Ben Benintendi. It took, for example, it took me a few games to see that. A guy like Hunter Green, who I mentioned, who's obviously not in the major leagues at this point, but... I mean, he was throwing 100 miles per hour in high school, you know, with the arm action. <laughs> yeah, plus raw power, probably 70 raw power. Like it was, it was pretty obvious when he stepped on the field. Like this guy's, this guy's a, this guy's a cut above, you know. Yeah, and and so what if a guy like just has an off day or an off night? Like how how much could that hurt his draft stock? And I think that 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 could that could depend on the team. Um, but like, let's say you go out to the park and embed attendee. You know, not to pick on him, but let's say he had a tough day at the plate, you know, and and you never actually got a good look at the in-game tools. How much could that hurt one one watch of a guy, one look at a guy hurt his draft stock for a specific team? I mean, it definitely could hurt. But at the same time, I do think it's on the scouts to continue to staying on a guy. I don't think performance really hurts the ability to identify raw tools. You know, if a guy has raw power, he has raw power. You know, whether he's hitting the ball far in a game or not is what we have to figure out next. But he has that power. If a guy has a 95 mile per hour fastball, it's there, right. you know. Um, so once you identify that raw tool to, to kind of entice you to come back, um, you know, that's on the scout to, to really determine that. I mean, there were situations where guys I were scouting, guys I signed, you know, I, I signed some pitchers who didn't throw a lot of strikes, you know, when they were in school and I ended up signing them. I signed a, an outfielder out of a big 12 school who really struggled in the early half of the year um, and ended up coming on uh, later in the year as he got some more reps. He was a football player. Uh, also, he went to university of Oklahoma and, 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 you know, as he got more reps throughout the year, uh, you know, he improved, he still had some swing and miss in his game, but we, I, we as a scouting department identified really early, you know, this guy's a big guy with some raw power and he can run. He's a good athlete. And so let's, you know, let's stay on him as, as these tools kind of progress and that tools to skills anecdote that I mentioned earlier started sort of, becoming more real as the season went along to the point where we were really, you know, willing to take the risk. So, I mean, development isn't linear. It's tough to sort of identify like a, a really, you know, set in stone rule for each prospect, but I really think it's on the scouts to stay with guys. I don't really think it's, you know, uh, it should be a detriment with that being said, if you're going to be drafted pretty high in the draft, there's a good chance that you are just a lot better than your peers. And so if all of a sudden you do end up struggling against that level of play, it does raise a red flag to a certain extent because scouts are going to look at it and say, you know, the negativity might translate to the next level also. So my, my suggestion to prospects is like always have a good game. Um, but obviously <laughs> realistically, that's not necessarily possible. Um, and so the, therefore, you know, just, just keep going through your process and it's up to the scouts to really identify how, how things work. 
Was that football player Cody Thomas? There was an uh, article in The Athletic about him the other day. Yeah, it was Cody out of OU, yeah. That's cool. And, and then um, two questions. One kind of a short question, one kind of longer question. Mm-hmm. First, you know, you say if a guy has raw power, a guy has raw power. If a guy has game power, does that get him kind of extra points? Like, okay, this guy has already identified a way to put the raw power into a game. Or does that not really differentiate much for you because of the level of competition? It's certainly question. Yeah, go ahead, sir. And then second question, um, you, you worked for the Dodgers who have seemingly done a fantastic job streamlining this, like, this prospect pipeline where basically instead of making deals at the trade deadline, they can just call up. I mean, they still make trades at the trade deadline, but. They, I felt like in recent years, they've always been like, okay, we're going to hold on to our prospects. And then the guys who are in the upper levels of the minors, we're going to look at those guys almost as the trade deadline acquisitions, bring those guys up, and then they immediately produce extremely well. And then everyone's like, okay, well, I'm glad we didn't trade these guys. You know, <laughs> is that how, you know, that has to start with the sort of talent you bring in. But how come that's always the Dodgers, I guess is my question. <laughs> So, uh, so to answer your first question, um, game power helps, you know, anything that we're going to be able to really see actualized on the field gives us a better uh, understanding of, of, or a better, uh, comfort level in the risk we're taking. It's almost like playing the stock market where, you know, you might be investing in like a blue chip stock, or you might be investing in like an upcoming startup. And it's just a matter of weighing your, your risk level and that comfort in that. So, um, it definitely helps to have game power, but you know, once you dive into the game power, you know, Hey, this guy's hitting 20 home runs in 56 games in college. Like, how is he doing it? Who is he doing it against? What does the process look like? What does the swing look like? Uh, you know, how much is he swinging missing when he's not squaring the ball up? So there's a lot of other variables, but I mean, just, it does definitely help that you should, as a prospect, you like should hit a lot of home runs. It's a good thing to do to get drafted. Um, and then to speak to the Dodgers process, I mean, look, we, we were pretty united. I think that was the key was, you know, the scouting department, Billy Gasparino is the scouting director of the Dodgers, probably my favorite boss I ever worked for. Um, love Billy with a great scouting department where we were, we were really aligned philosophically with what we were looking for. And, and we aligned with player development. We did a really good job. I think uh, communicating with PD, uh, having an understanding of what they were looking for. We had Gabe Kapler as the farm director, followed by uh, Brandon Gomes, uh, followed by Will Rimes, who's currently in place. And so I think, you know, having an understanding of what, what we were looking for as scouts, identifying those tools and under, uh, identifying, you know, um, what is going to work for our player development department in order for them to help develop the players. And then once we drafted the players and put them into the system, it was a unified message. You know, the players all speak the same language. Um, they all have an understanding of their skill set. They all speak in in the same terms and 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 understand how they're being evaluated. So it's it's constant communication and documentation and transparency. So that test retest model is happening in real time with everyone involved in it, including the players. And so, um, you know, it, it really starts from the ground up where you're seeing a player for the first time as an amateur scout, and it's working all the way up to his time in the big league. So when you have guys that are playing in the big league, guys like Dustin, like you mentioned, or other guys that I I was really fortunate enough to get to know as they were minor leaguers, like Tony Gonsolin and Will Smith and, and, and Gavin Lux and these guys, the process for a development for them was different because they're different people, but the philosophy was the same throughout the entire process. And so everybody was aligned with the same message. And once we got the player to, you know, we, once we, we had an understanding of how to communicate with each individual player, they took it upon themselves to really develop themselves. And it was really, really cool to see. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. And I think like, you know, the, the most efficient way to do anything is to streamline it. And, um, you know, it seems as if you, if you streamline that, you get better results. Definitely. 100%. 100%. And I think, I really do think, I can't speak for other organizations, um, but in my time with the Dodgers, I think that was one of the biggest learning experience for, experiences for me was, was the documentation, the organization, the transparency, the communication internally was was great. And it's something that I think most good organizations do. And I was really proud to be a part of it. And I think that, you know, if I'm going to continue moving on in my career and having success here and, you know, with Lotte, I think it's something that's going to be really important to continue moving forward and, and uh, continue, you know, operating under. Yeah. So, um, Jeremy, you got anything else or? No, I think this is, a, this is definitely a great conversation. We definitely hit on a lot of different things. Josh, I really appreciate you, uh, 
taking the time out of your night to do this. It's pretty late <laughs> over there. <laughs> yeah, no problem. And once again, like I said, just a quick plug, uh, any players that are looking for help with anything, whether it's being seen by a college or for the pro game, uh, feel free to DM me. My DMs are open on Twitter at Josh Herzenberg. Uh, would love to help out anybody I can if, if possible. Um, and then shameless plug for our team scrimmages. The YouTube account is Giants TV. You can just search that and check it out. All right. Well, uh, just to wrap things up, thank you, Josh, for coming on. And thanks, Jeremy, for getting up an hour earlier than, than me. <laughs> Um, to, to Jeremy, 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 like I said, tell your mom, tell your mom as a fellow adult <laughs> that you're welcome for getting you out of bed. I'll tell her when I wake up later in the day at two o'clock. All right, but make sure to get this message across. If you don't, I'm gonna make sure she listens to it. Okay, um, let her know. But, but yeah, it's uh, we, we normally record the podcast at night, so so getting getting one in in the morning is a little bit of a of it a, makes me feel productive. It does make me feel productive. Yeah, it's only 11 on the East Coast. I was awake like five hours ago. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, anyway, um, thanks, Josh, for coming on. Very insightful conversation, especially with regard to what's baseball going to do because we have no baseball, which is really, really sad. And yeah, yeah. Maybe we, can, we, we look to foreign leagues as potential. Um, opportunity for well i hope i hope you guys enjoy like. some lote giants games and and thank you for having me on hopefully it's insightful and hopefully you know hopefully all this clears up soon globally and we're able to you know keep on with our normal lives and uh you know just stay vigilant do the social distancing and and listen to listen to the people that are way smarter than me with the advice they're giving yes absolutely um so stay safe everyone thanks for listening to another episode of the framing the conversation podcast you can find us wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. I think we're on Google Podcasts too, but I'm not sure if anyone actually uses that. Um, and you can follow us on Twitter at Framing the Convo. Um, the Twitter handles for, for Jeremy um, and, and I and, and Taylor were all listed in the bio there. So hit us up on Twitter. And, and once again, Josh, thanks, thanks for coming on. And, and let's get back to baseball sooner rather than later. But after... We, this uh, public health crisis is cleared up. So stay safe, everyone. And, and once again, thanks.